Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the second and final part of Rescue, episode 14, Through the Storm We Ride. One stormy night in January 1998, a mayday signal is received by the U.S. Coast Guard team stationed at Sitka, Alaska. The signal came from somewhere out in the treacherous Fairweather grounds in the Gulf of Alaska. About 60 miles off the coast, four men are clinging on desperately for life as they are tossed about in churning icy waters as 100-foot-high waves crash into them. Due to 100-mile-per-hour winds, giant ocean swells, and a relentless roaring blizzard, two Coast Guard helicopter crews have so far been unable to rescue the men. Air Station Sitka has only one more helicopter at their disposal. Steve Torpy is its lead pilot. As soon as we took off and got outside Sitka Sound, the winds just kicked up and we were had 80 knots of tailwind all the way out, doing 220 knots across the ground, which was just stunning to me. As they head further out to sea, the weather only gets worse. As we got closer and closer to the scene, the weather started deteriorating, the ceiling came down. The ceiling is the base of the cloud. So if the ceiling's at 500 feet, the clouds start at 500 feet. Coast Guard flying, particularly in Alaska, requires us, for the most part, to stay below the ceiling or below the cloud deck. Because the higher you go, the colder it gets. Uh, The icing starts to overwhelm the helicopter. 120 miles usually takes us about an hour to get there. Uh, We were there in 30 minutes. That shocked me. As they power towards the Mayday location, Steve is concentrating so hard on keeping the helicopter in the air that he doesn't see the other helicopter fast approaching. All of a sudden, a device on the aircraft called TCAS, Traffic Collision Avoidance System, went off and said, traffic, traffic. It's a voice that makes you stop whatever you're doing and look around going, what is around me right now? I looked up and just in time to see the second aircraft flown by Lieutenant Commander Bull Durham flying the opposite direction. The two begin talking on the radio. Steve can hear in Bill's voice just how tough things have been. It's hard not to be rattled by it. I heard in his voice that how shook up he was. He was exhausted and he didn't say much, but he did say, Steve, be real careful, it's, it's difficult out there. And that sent the chill through me because I never heard him shook up before. He taught me how to fly helicopters. He was one of my mentors and Hearing him the way he was coming home without survivors in his aircraft, I could tell he was 
having a real tough time. All the while, the weather just gets worse and worse. It was just kind of a mess. It was sleeting, snowing, raining. I could see the water sometimes and it was awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. To see a wave rise like that, it would have been kind of interesting to see it in the daytime, to watch the whole thing occur. All I know is I didn't want to hit one of them. Before long, they reached their destination. Just like the pilots before, Steve can't help but shoot straight past the location. He brings the chopper back around. At times, as they fly back into the wind, the chopper is moving so slowly it gets pushed backwards. As the whole machine shudders like a pneumatic drill, Steve eventually maneuvers it back to where the men should be. I couldn't see what was happening below me. Windshields were icing up. The searchlight and the goggles weren't working at all. And all of a sudden, we could see retroactive tape reflecting off our searchlight. It's coming from the survival suits. The men are still there. I had no idea how many people were down there. Bill Addicts had said he thought there were four. I was working very hard just to remain in one spot, flowing with the turbulence and trying not to beat up the helicopter too much. Steve does his best to hold the chopper in place just so they can get some flares into the water. As I watched the survivor's reflection of the retro tape go underneath the aircraft and, and out of sight, I looked up and I couldn't see a thing. I had no idea which end was up at that point. I had that terrible feeling in my stomach that I get when I know I am beyond my limit. I said, uh, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, drop, drop, drop. Fred and Lee threw a whole bunch of flares out the door. Then I backed up and I just pulled the cyclic back a little bit, or so I thought. All of a sudden, Steve has lost control of the chopper. I'm going backwards at over 40 knots and I'm descending down towards the water. I'm basically out of control going backwards. We must have hit a gust or something like that and uh, we were crashing towards the water. And then I heard the crew in the back say, emergency up, which isn't standard. Um, that just tells you that they were freaking out in the back. Steve wrestles with the gear stick and with only seconds to spare, finally gets back control of the chopper. Eventually, we recovered. And all of a sudden we wound up back up at 100 feet and we're in a hover. We had backed up probably a mile and we were all stunned. I know the guys were shook up. Some of them said, hey, let's go home. I remember thinking to myself, I have to get these guys back in the right frame of mind. I said, all right, guys, we got flares in the water. 
Let's get back to work. It's enough to get everyone's attention back on task and face up to the reality that there are men in the water right underneath them that need saving. Steve keeps the chopper in the vicinity, all the while moving up and down with the swells as they rise and fall. The water is changing. It's, it's going up and it's coming down. So we're going up and down, kind of following it as best we could. The crew in the back battle the elements as they prepare to attempt a hoist. They're hanging out of the aircraft, holding on to the hoist cable and looking down. They get the full brunt of the snow and the rain and the wind. It was fogging up their goggles. I could tell that they were getting beat up. They were getting cold. They can't feel their hands anymore. Somehow, they get the basket out. And before Steve knows it, it's in the water. Essentially, flying blind. All Steve can do now is follow the flight mechanic's instructions as he tells him to edge the chopper back and forth to try and get the basket closer to the men. I can't see the survivors. The basket's trailing so far aft that the survivors are behind us. So I'm looking at nothing. It's completely black. Occasionally I would see a glimpse of the water with a searchlight, or I might see the flares up in front of me. Then incredibly, they get one. And then he said, the survivor's in the basket. Next I knew, he said, survivor's in the cabin. And at that moment, I was like, we're gonna get them all. We are going to get every one of these guys. This is gonna work. The survivor now on board is William Gig Mort, the deck boss of the Lacante fishing trawler. Bill Mork got out of the basket. They put him in one of the chairs in the back and we started on the second hoist. There is no time to waste. The basket is pushed out once more, but it's impossible to keep the helicopter steady enough to rescue another of the men. I am just yanking the aircraft left and right, forward and back. I have never seen the rotor blades move as much as I saw them move that night. I am beating the crap out of this aircraft. Uh, it was scary. They call it squeezing the black in the trade. Those moments of extreme stress when a pilot is so fixed in concentration, it seems the flight stick might get crushed in their hands. For every second you're flying and you're squeezing the black out of the cyclic. The cyclic's the, the stick that you use to control the aircraft. And it's painted black. And when you get really nervous, you squeeze real hard and the uh, pilots say you're trying to squeeze the black out of the cyclic. The stress and concentration doesn't let up for one second the entire time Steve is out there. There were times where I would look up and I would see the flares above my glare shield, which means we're at 100 feet and the wave is higher than me. So we're probably in a trough. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking at any point, the 
engine's gonna quit and we're gonna crash in the water and we're gonna die. Because once the transmission of the engines quit, we probably wouldn't survive. More after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Back in Sitka, Dan and the rest of the station wait for any positive news. Once something like that happened, you can't sleep. It was middle of the night, but it was like daytime. There's the people running around getting aircraft ready. Everybody was in there. Even the cooks were making us sandwiches and all this and that. And I'm like, I'm just happy to be back. I'm never flying again. Back out at sea, Steve finally gets the chopper close enough to the remaining survivors to attempt a second hoist. The basket is shoved out into the storm and splashes down into the water. As he edges the basket closer and closer to the three remaining men, flight mechanic Fred Colt cries out again. They have another one. Finally, Fred said, I think there's somebody in the basket. So he started to bring the basket up and as he did, pauses occurred a couple times. By pauses, he means the hoist isn't operating as smoothly as it should be. Something doesn't feel right. I realized something isn't right here. Something different is happening than the first hoist. And I couldn't tell what it was. And Fred couldn't tell what it was. He couldn't see 100 feet straight down because of the sea spray the rain, snow, sleet, it was just blinding him. As the basket came up, the wind was blowing it so hard, it was um, like 45 degrees aft of the aircraft. And it was swinging violently as it came up. Through the sleet and snow, Mike can just about make out the figure of a man crouched inside the basket as it draws nearer to the door. But when he tries to pull it into the aircraft, it won't budge. Then, to his horror, he sees why. There is a second man hanging on to the underside of the basket. As the basket got close to the aircraft, Mike Fish, our rescue swimmer, saw somebody hanging on the outside of the basket. There is a moment as Mike locks eyes with the second man underneath the basket. He can see the terror in his face. After everything he has been through, the countless hours surviving the impossible conditions in the water, 
he is only inches away from safety, when suddenly he loses his grip and disappears back into the darkness below. I heard Mike Fish say, he just fell. And this is the part that when I talk about it, I always get a little emotional. Because I looked at the radar altimeter and it said we were at 103 feet. And I, I knew that <clears throat> whoever fell, fell out of the basket couldn't survive that. Mike tries to blot it out of his mind. He tries to focus instead on getting the man inside the basket safely into the helicopter. Within moments, the pair of them are tumbling down together onto the deck. They pulled him in, they got him out and they put him in the seat. I remember looking back and I could see his face. I heard Mike Fish said, hey, it's Bob Doyle. And I said, our Bob Doyle? And he said, yeah. Bob Doyle, the deckhand of the Lacante. Incredibly, the crew know him well. Bob Doyle was a warrant officer who had just left the Coast Guard a few months earlier. And I saw his face and I could see how white it was. He had a beard now that he didn't have when I was in the Coast Guard, but I could recognize him. And I could see he was in complete shock. Obviously he'd been through a washer machine of a night. He was freezing cold. I just couldn't believe that I knew him. Like Mike Fish, Bob also saw the other survivor fall from the basket. Bob stammers through chattering teeth that it was Mark Morley, Lacante's captain. I looked out in front of me and I could see, um, I could see Mark Morley floating. All the other survivors were floating vertically in the water. And I could see Mark, the skipper of the Lacante, floating parallel to the water. I couldn't tell if he was face up or face down, but he had fallen 100 feet and he wasn't moving. Mike asks Bob Doyle how many others are down there. Bob replies five, although the Coast Guard crews had only ever seen four. Steve has a decision to make. We had one more survivor in the water, and we had the person, Mark, who had fallen. And I didn't think that at that point we were going to be able to get him aboard. Mike Fish, without a hesitation, said, I'll go down and get him. And at that point, we had learned that throughout the night, the hoist cable had been rubbing up against the edge of the cabin door and had started to fray the cable. It was starting to break. So I didn't want to put Mike into the water knowing that I might not get him back. Right now, it's just too dangerous to get Mark's body. They get the last survivor they can see. With three survivors now safely on board, 
it becomes clear that there is indeed a fifth crew member of the Lacante. But as the other survivors explain, he got separated from them early on and hasn't been seen for hours. The man is Dave Hanlon, the same Dave Hanlon who called his brother on the day the Lacante went back out to sea, convinced that this was his last trip on the vessel. More after the break. We never saw Dave Hanlon. We didn't have enough fuel or energy to search for him, unfortunately. And I have no idea if he was still alive at that point uh, or what had happened to him. With the third man on board, the crew spend what little time they have left before the fuel runs out, trying to retrieve Mark Morley's body. Once we got the third survivor on board, we tried to get the basket close to Mark Morley. And we were able to get the basket so close to him it touched him. And he didn't move. And at that point, I couldn't put Mike Fish down because the cable was starting to unravel. The other part of the decision was that I was getting really tired. And Captain Lefevre had noted that my reactions to what Fred told me to do were getting slower and slower. I was feeling it too. I Honestly, I didn't think I could stay out much longer. I was at the limit of my e exhaustion flying an aircraft. It was about three and a half Maybe it was four hours of flight time that night. I had never been so tired I couldn't do it anymore. But I was there. With that, Steve has no choice but to call an end to the search and return to land. They have been out so long, they no longer have enough fuel to make it back to Sitka so head to the nearby town of Yakutat instead. I gave the controls over to Captain Lefevre, and he flew us back to Yakutat Airport with three survivors on board. The entire way back, there wasn't one word said. An ambulance is waiting for them on the tarmac. Survivors got out of the aircraft, and they walked to the ambulance got in it and disappeared. It was kind of an odd moment. I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't get to talk to him. They just got in the ambulance and uh, drove away. I thought that was a little unusual, but it, it's not terribly uncommon to not have contact with survivors. But uh, I had kind of hoped just to see them, but it really didn't happen. With the survivors safely returned to land, Steve carries out a quick inspection of the aircraft. What he finds makes his stomach turn. After we shut down and I got out of the aircraft, I looked at the aircraft, kind of did a post-flight inspection, and I noticed that a piece of it was broken. An antenna mount, basically a stick that holds the high-frequency antenna away from the aircraft, is about 
a foot and a half, two feet long, was busted right off the aircraft and was hanging, hanging by the wire. And it happened to be about five feet away from the tail rotor. Without the tail rotor, helicopters can't fly. And my face just turned white. I asked Fred, hey, what happened to the antenna? He said, a buoy ball that was connected to the last survivor was flailing around in the wind behind us and hit it and knocked it off. I realized we had come within five feet of dying because if that buoy, which was about three feet in diameter, had even brushed the tail rotor, just brushed it, we wouldn't be talking right now. Fred said, I just cut it loose and it, and it disappeared, you know, gone into the Gulf of Alaska. Back in Sitka, word of Steve and his crew's heroic effort reached the station. But so too does the news that there is still one crew member of the Lacante unaccounted for. With Steve grounded in Yakutat and the second helicopter team having only just made it back to Sitka, it falls to Dan Moulton and Bill Addicts to lead a crew back out there. More after the break. They said, there's still a guy in the water. And we're like, oh, crap, we'll go. <laughs> so <laughs> my Montana plans changed. This time, they're better prepared. We had two flight mechs and a swimmer. So they actually gave us a flight mech, hoist operator, a swimmer, and an extra flight mech or swimmer. So we had three in the back. So we had a whole nother crew and ready to go get this fifth guy. With a new crew in the back, it doesn't take long before things start to get uncomfortable. Bill and I are talking back and forth. You know, and the air crew hadn't been out there yet. So they're listening to us talk about what happened last time. I can only think of what's going through their mind as we're talking about what happened last time and hearing about the other two aircraft going home. Man, what did we get ourselves into? So we're getting out there. We're at the same altitude, getting beat up again. We're at 300 feet. We can't see the water. And we're kind of circling around and go, hey, let's go down to 250. So we go down to 250 feet. And then we're like, well, I can't see the water yet. Why don't we go down to 200? I wasn't even thinking about the guys in the back. And they go, hey, sir, how big was that wave that almost hit you? And I go, oh, yeah, that was a big wave. That's probably 100, 100. And he goes, and we're 200 feet. He goes, why don't we go home? And it's like, that is the smartest thing I've ever heard in a helicopter said before. Let's go home. We're going to probably die if we go down there at, you know, lower than 200 feet. And so we're like, Bill and I looked at each other. He was in charge and he goes, let's go home. So we turned around and flew home. It's the second time that night that Dan and Bill have been forced back by the weather. It's another crippling blow. It's just a, it's just a real bad feeling in your gut just to know what had happened. After returning to base and completing some paperwork, Dan is finally free to head home. I probably didn't even take a shower. I just, I said, I just want to go home. I got back and I'm not even sure what time, but I just sat at the bottom of the steps and just went through things. I wasn't crying. I was just, 
totally worn out, totally physically and mentally just done and just with my own mind. And I don't know how long I sat there, but um, I just, you know, it's just one of those things you just, you think you can't sleep. And then finally my wife came walking down stairs and she's like, are you okay? I go, nah, not really. She knew immediately something was wrong. She goes, you want to talk? And I think I talked about it a little bit to her. You know, and she's great because she's been through a lot of this before. And so she just sat there for a little bit and she says, you'll be okay. And, you know, after that, it's kind of a blur. I think I might've gotten up in bed or the three kids got up and jumped. I mean, you're still dad. They don't care, they don't care what you've gone through. You're still dad. They're like, dad's home, yeah. So makes it a little bit easier. Dan's co-pilot that night, Bill Addicts, had a three-day rule to help him deal with tough missions. It's like if something bad happens to you, you got three days. First day, you're just going to be a mess. The second day, okay, now you're recovering. And then the third day, you suck it up and you go on. I'm sure the psychiatrist would hate that, but I've kind of gone with that, you know, the rest of my flying career. Like Dan, Steve also struggles to sleep that night. None of us could sleep. I remember being doubled up in a room with the skipper. Both of us were just sitting there looking at the ceiling. So we just kind of waited until it made sense for us to fly home. Steve and his crew make it back to Sitka around noon the following day. Only then does the true enormity of what they had experienced begin to sink in. The next day, um, we just all got together and they talked to us. It takes days to come down from something like that. I didn't realize it, but my wife Carrie told me multiple times that I wasn't myself for several days. Most of us just kind of wandered around a little bit, just making small jokes and just trying to shake it off as best we could. We didn't really know what to do. A few months later, an investigation was carried out into the case. It gave Steve and Dan the chance to finally meet with the men whose lives they had saved and the family of those they hadn't been able to. I got to see Bob Doyle and Gig Bork and Mike DeCapua, as well as Tamara, Mark Morley's widow. And that was difficult because it turns out she was pregnant just as my wife was. And uh, I provided a account of the events so that she could hear it because I wanted her to know exactly how her fiance had died. There's little question about how close both Steve, Dan, and all their colleagues came to death that night in their selfless efforts, putting their own lives on the line to rescue others. This mission was the hardest I've ever been on. The toughest rescue probably, I would say, the Coast Guard's ever done. 
especially when it takes three, four aircraft and all the harrowing experience and all that. That's the worst weather I've ever flown in. I can't say I was scared because I was so busy just trying to fly the darn thing and keep us out of the water. Steve was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, one of the highest awards a pilot can receive for his part in the successful rescue of Bob Doyle, Mike DiCapua, and William Morley. I'm sure it means different things to different people. Um, The award itself basically, to me, represents um, that I found the limit of my flying ability. It, It tells me that I was challenged to the the largest extent I think I could ever manage. I was fortunate enough to use every ounce of training that Coast Guard offered me and put it into a single event. And the award is basically an affirmation of that. It's a conversation piece and, and allows me to maybe talk a little bit more about this case, try to get some of that therapy every time I talk about it out in the open. Understandably, the mission left an indelible impression on both Steve and Dan. I did have a a moment years later that really demonstrated that I was still holding, holding stuff in. I know I did everything I could possibly do. You know, my heart knows that. My brain tells me I should have saved all five. It's always in the back of your mind about how what happened up there. All my big ones kind of are back there and you think about them a lot. You, you don't train for failure, you train for success. So trying to figure out how to deal with it is an individual um, effort. And you ultimately have to recognize that there are times where Mother Nature's just too hard. You cannot do what you set out to do. Each one of the members on those crew had to deal with the Lacante case in a different way. And I hope each one of them have uh, reconciled the fact they did everything they possibly could. Roughly six months after the Lacante sunk, Two teenagers out hunting on Shuyak Island, about 600 miles from where the ship went down, stumbled upon a single neoprene mitten, the type worn by commercial fishers. It was found alongside bear scat and paw prints. Inside it were human remains. Following a trail, the two teenagers stumbled upon a recently vacated bear's den. And there, piled up on a mound of dirt, were the torn remains of a survival suit, the same one worn by David Hanlon the night he went missing. The remains were later identified as those of the fifth and final crew member of the Lacante, David Hanlon. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. 
Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Ellie Lazaridis for additional production support. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.